Uh, a lot of catching up to do after Christmas going into a new year. So let me give you the, the brief rundown. Here's how my Christmas was. COVID. And then not COVID. And so it got better. Um, <clears throat> but thankfully only two members of the egg in the household uh, were down for the count. And it didn't run through the whole family. It is great to be back with you. I hated missing being with you on Christmas Eve. Um, so welcome. Glad to have you here today. Today... Um, we're going to do something dangerous. We're going to read a scripture passage about something that we will all misunderstand unless we uh, get out in front of it. Uh, <clears throat> I don't know if you know the name William James. First time I heard it was in a class on philosophy of religion. I was a freshman at Clemson University in 1988. I read this article by a guy named William James. He's the father of American psychology. He once said this, Faith is when you believe something that you know ain't true. Now, James, father of American psychology, uh, professor, teacher, PhD, all that good stuff, but, but that's him trying to say in, in everyday language what faith is. And, and that's the way he said it, right? Faith is, according to his summary, when you believe something and you already know that it's not real, when, when you know it ain't true and you believe it anyway, that's faith. That is the way that most people in the Western world today understand the word faith. We're about to read from Hebrews chapters 11 and 12 some samplings, and it's going to use the word faith a lot. And it does not mean that. It means something very different. Right? So we have to up front say, don't think that understanding of faith when you hear the Bible talking about faith. We're going to replace that definition with something better. Right? We'll start here with a kind of working definition of faith by a woman named Cory Ten Boom. Uh, Cory Ten Boom was from the Netherlands. And she, along with her family, uh, risked her life hiding uh, Jewish people who were being persecuted uh, during World War II, hiding them in their home. Uh, they wound up being discovered, and she and several members of her family sent to concentration camps. Not all of her family survived. She did. And uh, Corrie Boom, she describes faith when she says this, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. It's very different from this idea that says faith is believing something when you know it isn't real. Faith is believing something when there's no evidence to support its truth. Faith is trusting someone you know to be with you in the unknown. Get ready for a new year. You don't know what's ahead. Hebrews chapters 11 and 12 today are going to call us not to believe that the year ahead is going to be pretty good, even though we know that's not true. Believe everything's going to work out, even though there's no evidence to, to think that in this broken and fallen world. 
what Hebrews is going to mean when it calls us to faith is something very different. Trusting the God we know to be with us, even in what is unknown. Stacy's going to read for us this morning a few samplings from Hebrews. Thank you. As Jimmy said, our scripture reading this morning is selections from Hebrews chapters 11 and 12. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us, lay, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. This is God's word. This is, this is our, our story. story. Okay, Billy tells me that we're having a problem with the headset, so I'm going to do this differently today. Preach with the ice cream cone mic. I'm going to go ahead and take this one off, so it won't be in our way. Thanks, Billy. Sure. Uh, bad news for you. This morning's sermon is going to take about a year. Um, I'll explain that later. The, the good news is we won't do a whole year's worth of work today. Um, all right, here we go. I'm going to put this over here because I don't think we need this anymore today. So, stay tuned for what that means, but we will start uh, this morning by saying we want to do a few things today. We want to define what faith is. We want to say why it's going to take a year to unpack this. What are the challenges to faith that we're experiencing right now and will continue to experience for um, probably the rest of our lifetimes? Define faith. What are the challenges to faith? And, and, and then I want to talk about resilient faith. Some of the foundations of, of the kind of faith that the, the writer of the book of Hebrews needed his people to have. This is a pastor writing to his flock, and he can't be where they are. And so he writes a sermon. He writes down what he would say to them if he could be with them. And, and why does he write about Moses, who's experiencing mistreatment? Uh, 
and, and who's, who's having to make a choice between the reproach of Christ, verse 26 says, versus the treasures of Egypt. Why does he write about Jesus, who has, who has to endure the cross and despise its shame? Well, partly because he's writing to people for whom faith is not only hard, but it's getting harder. They're living in a moment when it's becoming more costly to stay loyal to Jesus. And he has to talk to them about how to, how to have a resilient faith that can bounce back under that kind of pressure and thrive uh, when life is really hard. So those are the things we'll do this morning. We'll say what faith is. We're being called to endure and persevere and have this resilient faith. Well, what is that thing we're being called to endure in? Why is it going to be so hard to endure? Why is it getting harder? What are those challenges? And what would it look like to have resilient faith? So let's start with that definition. Uh, William James, we already said, did a good job of summarizing what the contemporary view of faith is. Faith is when you believe something you know ain't true. Faith is willingness to accept something as true or real, even when there's no evidence to lead to that. That is how most people understand faith today. And, and I would say that's probably a pretty accurate defin, uh, dictionary definition of the word faith in 21st century English. But that is not the only possible definition of that word. It's certainly not how the scriptures use the word faith. Willingness to accept something as true or real when there's no solid evidence. Mm. No. Listen to that definition. It, it means that ultimately faith is responding to something inside yourself. I want to believe this thing even though I have no evidence to believe it's true. So I'm going to respond to my desire to believe it by believing it. I think it is true. I'm going to respond to what I think about it by believing it. The thing outside me doesn't exist. There's no evidence to support it. It's not real. So I can't respond to anything outside me on this definition of faith. On this definition of faith, faith is always a response to something in me. Nobody else around me has the boldness and courage to believe this thing we can't see, but I do. I'm responding to my own sense of courage. This definition of faith always, always kind of leaves you trapped inside yourself. Here's a biblical definition of faith. Faith is confidence in God drawn out of us by his greatness and leading to loving loyalty. Faith is confidence in God. See the difference? We're not responding now to something inside us. Faith is confidence in God drawn out of us by his greatness. There is a God who exists. He exists outside of us, apart from us. In fact, our existence is dependent on him. And when we encounter his greatness, that's when faith is drawn out of us. It's always a response, not to something inside, but to him. And it leads somewhere. Faith is confidence in God, drawn out of us by his greatness. 
and leading to loving loyalty. Listen to the language used in Hebrews 11, verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It would be possible to hear those words, assurance and conviction, like they're describing inner states, like faith is what's going on inside of me. The language used here, these Greek words, they have to do with something happening outside of you. One way to translate it would be faith is, is the evidence of events that haven't happened yet. That's another way to translate the end of the, uh, the verse here. What evidence do you have for events that haven't occurred yet? You have no knowledge of the future. You can't know anything about events that haven't happened yet. But if there is a God who is great enough to know those events, and he, if he tells you what's coming in the future, then the evidence you have that those things are going to happen is what do you know about him? Oops, that unknown future to the known God. Faith is responding to something outside of our Selves. Listen to the way that Moses' faith is described in verse 26 of chapter 11. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Why? Because he was looking to the reward. There was something outside of him, bigger than him. Some future promise he was waiting for. And that gave him the strength to be mistreated along with the Hebrew slaves. Rather than kind of choosing a comfortable life as royalty in Pharaoh's household. Faith is responding not to something inside yourself. It's responding to something outside of you. Um, let uh, Let me pause here with a few sort of, if, if you want to grow in resilient faith in the coming year, there's some sorts of diagnostic questions that you could ask to stay on a path to see that happen. The first one would be, would be this, am I seeking to know God? Trust an unknown future to a known God. Do I want to know God? Am I seeking to know him? If faith is a confidence in God that's drawn out of us by his greatness, what am I doing to see the signs of his greatness around me? What am I doing to hear the greatness of his promises? When I see the evidence of his greatness, when I hear the promises in Scripture of his greatness, the greatness of his glory, the greatness of his goodness, the greatness of his grace, when I see and hear those things, am I responding to them with confidence? So the first question is, am I even seeking to know this God? Am I seeking to see and hear his greatness? And then secondly, when I do, how am I responding? Am I responding with confidence in him? And then third, is that confidence leading me to deeper love and loyalty 
toward him in my life. Resilient faith is going to just keep hovering around those questions continually. Um, why do we need to do that? What are the challenges to faith that we are facing now? Uh, I didn't know it at the time. Trisha didn't know it at the time. God was preparing us for a ministry in Atlanta in the year 2024 by um, taking us to a city called Aberdeen, Scotland, in the year 1995. Aberdeen is a city in the north of Scotland. It's about three hours north of Edinburgh by car. Um, and... Uh, it's not the kind of place that people go for uh, tourism, so you may never have visited there or heard of it. Um, kind of the only things going there are uh, oil industry for a while and uh, university. That's what took us there. The saying in Aberdeen is that there are 10 steeples for every church. Now, a lot of American church architecture has, has uh, let the steeple uh, go, right? So, in town, we don't have a steeple on our church, right? But you know what a steeple is, right? Big, tall, pointy thing that lets everybody in the town know that's a church. Well, a lot of traditional churches in Scotland had those steeples, and, and the saying now is that there are 10 steeples for every church, meaning that society has moved so far beyond Christianity that most churches don't exist anymore. And therefore, most of those properties have been sold and converted into other things. People love it when their churches become bars and nightclubs and hangouts. Um, but, you know, you'll drive by a church building that's now a law office. We even saw one that had been gutted and turned into a parking garage. Um, <clears throat> why is that? Well, because it's because um, Aberdeen is the most secular city in all of Great Britain which is one of the most secular nations in all of Europe. Why this one little city for the past 30 years has consistently polled as the place in Great Britain where the smallest number of people profess any kind of religious commitment, not just Christian, anything. And... Um, so, for example, now, if you, if you do a survey in the United States, about 30% of our population will say, I'm a nun. I have no religious affiliation whatsoever. That number in Aberdeen right now is 50%, not 30. Whatever shift we're going through in the U.S., Aberdeen went through it about 50 years ago. Um, Church life and leadership has become what I would call more concentrated. That's kind of a positive way of saying smaller. <laughs> fewer churches, fewer people going to churches, not enough pastors to lead the churches that exist, not enough elders, deacons, people willing to serve in ministry leadership. And so as we visit over there, we might... It's, very common to attend a little church where there are 15 people in the congregation and, and the, the, the pastor or the priest will say, yeah, this is my third service today. I've got to go do this at two other churches. I met a Scottish pastor last summer walking down the street of Edinburgh. And he said that his general assembly 
had just met and voted so that he is now in charge of like 12% of the land mass of all of Scotland. One pastor. Scotland's the size of South Carolina. There's so few leaders, so few Christians. Why? Western Europe has become a post-Christian culture. The United States, we're, we're catching up to that. That's making faith harder. It, it's making it harder to have confidence in God. It's making it harder to sense the signs of his greatness and respond to them with confidence in him. It's making it harder to live out loving loyalty toward him. Now, the news isn't all bad. Can I take a moment and say, because I want to describe some of the bad news in a minute, but first I want to say, this is not a chicken little kind of sermon. You know that story, right? Chicken little afraid of skies falling. Nobody's ever taught chicken little about rain, and like rain's actually kind of a good thing, and it's a natural thing, and don't panic. But she thinks the whole world is imploding, and so she's trying to get everybody to share the panic with her. Um, this is not a chicken little moment for Christianity in the world. And this is not one of those sermons. This is not beginning a year of reflecting on how we turn the clock back to some pristine era of history or how we hang on to some moment of culture that has passed us. No, God is calling us to be faithful in the moment he's placed us in. What does that look like? I used the word concentrated earlier. Yes, the number of people professing faith in Jesus in a place like Aberdeen, Scotland is growing smaller. But the people who do profess faith in Jesus in that place are more serious about it now than ever. It's concentrated. The number may be smaller, but the intensity is greater. Do you like to eat crawdads? That's my question for you going into 2024. Do you know what a crawdad is? Now, you might call it a crawfish. You can be excused for this. A crayfish. That's a step better. A crawdad. So for one year, I lived in Mississippi growing up. My dad worked uh, building levees out by farms in the, in the countryside. And after a big rain, he would take me with him. And my job was to use a net on the end of a 10-foot pole to fish crawdads out of mud holes so that we could eat them for dinner. Right? So yeah, it's miniature lobster, kind of extra big shrimp, swamp shrimp, whatever you want to call it, right? But it's good eating. And uh, when you're in the ninth grade and there's nothing to do, well, it's kind of fun. So Daddy would drop me off and... and um, Oftentimes, we do this three or four days in a row after a big rain. And uh, so, big, big rain, you get these big mud poles like the size of this whole stage. And I'd spend the whole day trying to catch crawdads out of that big mud puddle. It's kind of hard to catch them because they they're fast and they got a lot of room to roam. Wait till day three or day four. The sun's shining. What's happening to that mud puddle? It's getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And all of those crawdads are occupying smaller and smaller space. So on day four, I could take the bucket out there and just like fill it up, just 30, 40 at a time. Amazing. That's what's happening to Christianity in a post-Christian world, right? It's getting concentrated. Maybe the footprint geographically, 
numerically is shrinking, but the intensity of the faith that is required of us will be greater than ever. And that's what we experienced in, in Scotland, is be around people who weren't playing games with Jesus. We went there in 1995, kind of right in the middle of what we call the worship wars here in the United States, when a lot of churches were trying to figure out, do we still have organs and choirs and robes and very traditional music, or do we sing newer stuff written by people who never played an organ, all they have is a guitar? Do we use drums, or is that devil music when you put the drums in? Like we're, Those were the discussions we were having. We went to Scotland... And we worshiped alongside people who were like, we don't care. If there are people who will come sing about Jesus with us, we will sing with the organ cranked up. We will sing with an out-of-tune guitar. We will sing with no instruments. We will sing however because we have found people who know Jesus with us. It's a resilient kind of faith that begins to grow in different ways, even as in some ways it's being challenged more and more. All right, post-Christian culture, what's it going to tell us? It's going to tell us a few things that are going to make faith harder. One is that nothing exists outside yourself. The self is the most fundamental reality in all the universe. This is kind of the philosophical underpinning of our culture and we've been moving in that direction for several centuries. This is not just a this decade kind of movement. The self is the most fundamental reality in the universe. And um, if anything outside yourself exists, you're going to have a hard time knowing it. And therefore, you're going to have a hard time sharing that knowledge with anyone outside yourself. So that's number one. The self is kind of the measure of all existence. Number two, we can only know what is. We can't know what ought to be. We can have opinions about what ought to be. We can, we can have debates about the way things should be, but we can never know what ought to be. All we can know is what is. Where our senses perceive, what we can demonstrate with, with science, that's real, that's fact. Everything else is just opinion. It means there's no reliable guide to meaning and significance and truth. There's reliable guides to fact, but not to truth. And in Thirdly, in this kind of culture, we're going to hear again and again and again, you are responsible for securing your own happiness. Remember, there may not be anything outside of you, and even if there is, you'll have a hard time knowing it. And so, if you want happiness, it's up to you. Nobody else is going to seek it for you. You've, your happiness is your number one priority. You cannot compromise this priority. You are morally obligated to seek your own happiness. 
Nobody else can help you. That's the water we're swimming in. I want to speak to us today about resilient faith, a faith that could flourish in that kind of environment. I want to start in a very basic place. It's, it's the place where this ancient pastor reaching out to people he couldn't be with, knowing that faith in Christ was becoming harder and harder for them. It's the place he started. He said, this is going to be hard. There are a whole lot of weights that weigh us down. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Let us lay aside every weight. Our own sin will make this harder. Let us lay aside every sin that clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. This is going to be hard work. How do we do it? Verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Founder and perfecter. The founder starts something, the perfecter finishes it. Jesus lived a life from start to finish of faith. If you want to know what it's like to trust God and be confident in him, in a world where that's hard to do, Jesus has already done it. He, he lived in this world. His life was one of constant confidence in God, even among circumstances that uh, told him he should give up. He has lived the life of faith that you and I won't get right. He has gotten it right in our place. That's why we can be told in Scripture, look to him, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Here's some of the foundations. We're going to name three right now. We're going to keep building this list as the year goes on. Um, I'm convinced that the themes of this sermon are going to, they're just going to be the themes of ministry for the rest of my lifetime because the cultural shifts happening around us are not going to go backward. These challenges are going to continue to be present with us every day. Every day we will be told that the self is most important reality, that there is no guide to truth, only facts, And that your greatest priority, which you must never compromise for any other person, is your own happiness. In fact, it would be wrong for you to compromise the pursuit of your own happiness to please someone else. We're going to keep hearing that over and over and over again. So we've got to keep hearing over and over and over again these foundations of resilient faith. Can I tell you some good news? God is there. Something outside of you exists. That's the first foundation for resilient faith. When Christianity talks about trusting God, we're not talking about trusting a projection of our own desire. We are not talking about trusting a coping mechanism because we're too weak to face reality. 
when real Christianity, not the big, broad, shallow kind that's as big as this stage, but the tiny, intense, mud puddle, baking in the sun kind, when real Christianity talks about trusting God, it's talking about a God who really exists outside of the self. Do you hear that as good news? That Jesus came into this world and he himself had to trust his father. His father had made him a promise and said that there was joy awaiting him. And because of that promise, he endured the cross and despised its shame. Jesus had to trust that God was there, even when his own experience was telling him God was not. He had to persist in that kind of confidence while he was experiencing crucifixion. Jesus was not doing that because he was too weak to face reality. Jesus was doing that because something outside of the self really exists. That's good news. You are not alone. If you start with this sort of fundamental conviction of our culture, that the most real thing in this whole universe is yourself. And that's all you will ever really know. And you are the only one who can know yourself. And you are the only one who can make yourself known. And you are the only one who can maintain your true self. That's a whole lot of hard work doing, being done alone for your entire life. And the good news of biblical Christianity is to say you're not alone. Someone outside of you really exists. He's not an idea. He's a person. God is there. He exists. Jesus understood that. We look to him as the founder and perfecter of our faith. Here's a second foundation for resilient faith. God isn't silent. There is a way to know true truth. Yes, God has given us ways to know facts. He made a real world and he gave us eyeballs. We can learn facts about the real world by looking at it. Science is a good gift. We can learn a lot about the world that we live in. We can know what is. And yet we can also know True truth, not just facts, but meaning and significance. What ought to be? Science can tell me true facts about the world I live in. It cannot tell me that it's better to believe true facts than false ones. Can I ever know that with any certainty, with any confidence? Yeah. There is a way to know what ought to be. God can communicate in ways that aren't distorted by human limitations and human failings. The story we have been told as our culture moves into this sort of new phase, post-Christian culture, the story we're being told is that you cannot trust any body who claims to know ultimate truth, because they'd have to ground that claim on something that exists outside the self. And we're not sure that anything outside the self exists. 
So it's arrogant to claim that there's some place to stand. And therefore, you can't believe anything that Scripture says. It's only a record of human religious opinions and experiences. So sometimes it's helpful where we, where we evaluate those opinions as helpful. It can be good for us. But where we evaluate those opinions as harmful, then, then it's not good for us. And it becomes like a dirty window. I'm not trying to see the dirty window. I'm trying to look at the real thing behind it. And the dirty window keeps messing it up. And, but what Scripture says that there is there's a God who can communicate in ways that aren't distorted by human limitations so that we can know real truth, what Francis Schaeffer called true truth with a capital T, truth that isn't just a reflection of humus, human experience or desire. Really? Can we know that? It's interesting, it's, it's, it's this language of Jesus being the author and perfecter of faith. Sort of, he's there at the beginning of the story, the author, and, and he's there at the end. Perfect in Latin used to mean complete, not flawless, but complete. The story is finished. The story is complete. Jesus wrote the first line and he wrote the last line. He's the it, it takes us back to something that was said early in the book of Hebrews. It's in chapter 1. The very first line that this pastor writing to people for whom a life of loyal love to Jesus is getting harder. This is the first thing he says. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. You hear where he's starting? I want you to have resilient faith. So let's start here. There's a God who exists outside of us. And that God spoke in ways that are meaningful. And he spoke to the prophets, and the prophets were human, and they were flawed, and they were fallible. But God somehow is so great that he could speak through them so clearly that what he wanted us to hear was not distorted by their failings, not distorted by their flaws. It would be hard to believe that any human being could speak like that. Yes, yes, God is not a human being. He is able to do more than we could imagine. He spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. When Jesus came, it was the, it was the continuation of a story that always had Jesus in it from the very first line. It's the completeness, the final chapter of a story that God's always been telling. Jesus is the author and the perfecter of this story of confidence in God, 
drawn out of us by his greatness and leading to loyal love. There's a God who can speak like that. Albert Schweitzer was a uh, missionary doctor, spent time serving in Africa. He was also a New Testament scholar. And uh, he wrote a lot of books about um, knowing, trying to know Jesus according to the standards of modern scholarship. He lived in the 1800s. And he once said this about trying to know Jesus. He said, it's like looking down into a well. You walk to the edge of the well. All right, first of all, we've got to define that word. Does everybody know what a well is? There are people in this room who don't know what a well is. Deep hole in the ground where you get water. If you didn't grow up playing around old abandoned wells and you know, your parents telling you, don't, don't step on that hole because you don't know where it's going to go. If you didn't grow up getting in trouble with the police for, uh, never mind, that's another story. <clears throat> they, they, they worried that my friends and I had hidden a body in a well. Like, no, no. Albert Schweitzer said, trying to know Jesus is like standing at the edge of a well and looking down. And in the dim darkness at the bottom, you can barely make out a face. And it turns out, you know whose face it is? It's yours. You want to know Jesus, but in the end, all you can know is yourself. You see your own reflection staring back at you. You read the Bible and all you see is what you want to see. That was Schweitzer's understanding of Scripture. You can't trust it to help you know Jesus. It can tell you more about you because in the end, what exists? Just you. There's a story in which Jesus is saying to us in every page of Scripture, from the beginning to the end, author and perfecter, the whole story, Jesus is shouting to us, my Father is good. He is great. He is there. You can trust Him. You can trust Him. You can trust every word he speaks. You're not alone. All right, third foundation. First foundation for a resilient faith. We've got to get, get outside ourselves. We've got to know that there is something outside of us that exists. There is a God who is really there. We've got to know that that God is not silent. He can speak true truth into our world. And the scriptures, therefore, are not just a record of what we want to see. Here's a third foundation for resilient faith. Joy is a gift. Joy is a gift. Joy is a gift. Let that sink in. If you have started to believe that you are responsible for securing your own happiness, 
That is like a death sentence. Because you know how many times you have done things that led to your own unhappiness. Thinking they would lead to greater joy and fulfillment, they backfire. You know that about yourself. You can't trust yourself to find your own happiness consistently. And yet you live in a world that says that is your one great goal and you are the only one who knows how to pursue it. You better not blow it. There's, a, there's an atheistic version of this that says you've got to pursue your own happiness because all that exists is matter and time and chance. And you're just a bunch of lucky molecules, so you better make the most of your happiness while you can because this is all, all there is, baby. And once you die, that's it. And then there's a very religious version of this that's very moralistic that says there is a life beyond this one and there's happiness in that life, so you better do as much as you can right now to make sure that you deserve a share of that happiness. But they're the same story, whether it's the atheistic materialist version or the religious moralistic version, it's the same story. Happiness is out there if you can get it for yourself. And then here comes Jesus saying, no, joy is a gift. Listen to that line from Hebrews 12 again. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. The Father promised joy to the Son. And the Son trusted the Father's promise and said, I will remain confident in this promise even when everything else around me <laughs> makes it look like that promise has been forgotten. I'm going to trust the God I know to see me through the shame and suffering of the cross for the joy that was set before me. Now, here's the thing about that joy. Jesus considered it a joy so good that it ought to be shared. I want the joy that the Father has promised me because the, the Father has promised that I can bring many sons and daughters into that joy with me. It's a kind of joy that says I'm, I'm not locked inside my own happiness. I, I am free now to care about the happiness of other people. I don't live in a universe where I'm not sure that other people even really exist because the only thing I can know is myself. I'm not dominated by this urge to make my own happiness my greatest priority. There's a kind of joy that's meant to be shared. A joy so good it's worth sacrifice. That's the story of Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. I hope you hear that as good news. Keep repeating those things to yourselves and to other people as much as you can. God really is there. 
He's not silent. Joy is possible, but it's a gift. Martin Luther King defined faith this way. Faith is taking the first step even when you can't see the whole staircase. Faith is taking the first step even when you can't see the whole staircase. Now, the contemporary definition of faith says faith is taking the first step even when there is no staircase. Even when all the evidence tells you the staircase isn't real, you take the step anyway, that's faith. The king understands his Christianity. He's not going to say it that way. He doesn't see, he doesn't say, take the first step when you can't see the staircase. He says, you can't see the whole staircase. There are good reasons for taking this first step. Take it. Resilient faith says, I can see the first step. The first step is confidence in Jesus. Drawn out of me by the greatness of his love, drawn out of me by the greatness of his courage, drawn out of me by the greatness of his sacrifice, drawn out of me by the greatness of who he is and what he has done. The first step is confidence in Jesus. And I can see the last step. The last step is sharing the joy that was set before him. So I will take the next step with Jesus. Because I can see that first step. Confidence in him. And I can see the last step. I know where this is leading. I don't know where every step takes me in the year ahead, the decades ahead. But I will take the next step with Jesus. Never be afraid to take the next step with Jesus. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, our world is changing. And um, some of us don't like change. It makes us afraid. Some of us thrive on it. We get kind of excited thinking about a world that's changing. Whatever's happening in the world around us, you are not afraid. Um, the scriptures tell us that you are seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And uh, that gives us strength. Whatever is ahead, we won't grow weary or faint-hearted because we know you. I pray that you will help us to grow in this kind of faith that is resilient, that thrives and flourishes even under new circumstances. Help us, Lord Jesus, to trust you more than we trust anything or anyone else. This is our prayer. We ask it in your name. Amen.